0: Please note that this show was originally recorded in October of 2012. Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatch, and you are tuned into the Double-Aid Sword Program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations. And on the Double-Aid Sword Program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Today, as we cut to the heart of the deceptive culture, what's deceptive about what we're going to talk about, about vocations. And we're going to talk about some of the deceptions and some of the sort of the just um, erroneous ideas that, that seem to pervade out there, that seem to hang on in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. And we'll talk about the evidence to the contrary today. I think that what happens a lot of times when you talk about vocations, and we're going to find out this, this, isn't just talking about vocations of the priesthood and religious life. We're going to talk about the vocation of marriage as it goes along with it as well, because the, 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 the two are religious vocations and the, and the vocation to marriage are, are just, they're inextricable. Um, the, the two of them go hand in hand. And sometimes people have a hard time with that. And so we'll, we'll pick that apart as well. But I think that probably what happens Sometimes, you know, people think of a vocation as something rather than something to be freely and joyfully lived, they think of it as something to be grudgingly accepted. And again, we'll find out that this way of thinking seems to apply in a lot of people's heads um, to the priesthood and religious life, to a religious vocation, as well as to the vocation of marriage. In fact, I heard a a very wise um, nun one time. She was giving a presentation to our college students at the Catholic Campus Center and she was talking about our vocation. I mean, we're, we're trying to get from point A to point B. Point A is our conception in our mother's womb. Point B is heaven, the beatific vision, beholding God's face forever in the joy of heaven. And we're trying to get from point A to point B. And she was talking about how it's kind of like crossing a large body of water. It would be like you're trying to cross the Atlantic Ocean or something. So um, One way to get across the Atlantic Ocean might be to swim. That'd be awful hard. Probably nobody would make it, but it's at least in theory, it's one way you could do it. The other way would be to row. Get a rowboat or a kayak or something like that. People have done that. And, um, and power yourself across the ocean somehow um, in some kind of a, of a human-powered craft. Again, that'd take you a lot of work. Another way might be to get on a steamship, you know, get on a on a, a boat, you know, a cruise ship or something like that. I mean, I don't know how long it takes. Probably takes close to a week to cross the, the Atlantic that way. But the best way, of course, would be to get into a high speed jet aircraft, you know, get into a 747 and take off from New York and land in London a few hours later. That would be the ideal way of doing it. Well, um, as as Sister was saying, you know, our vocation from God, as we get from point A to point B, as we get from our conception to our eternal and reward and inheritance with God in heaven, is the same thing. The way God has lined out for us, God's vocation, God's call for us, is the jet ride. It's, it's getting into the airplane and zipping across with the least amount of bumps and the least, really the least amount of effort on our part. We can reject God. We can tell God that we would just as soon do it our own way. And we might still end up getting to heaven, but it's not going to be a very pleasant trip. And so I think that um, maybe that's probably the first thing to think about when we think about what our vocation is about. The second might be a little, little bit closer to home. Rather than go to the theoretical, let's go right to the practical, to our situation right here. And we're going to name names. We're going to talk about specific parishes and specific communities and see what's going on. You know, you know, at Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish, um, it was founded in 1952, so that parish is like 60 years old. And over that 60-year period, Immaculate Heart of Mary has been served by about 35 priests. That's a lot of priests that have come and gone. Over that same period of time, we've only had two vocations come out of Immaculate Heart of Mary. Father Gail Hammerschmidt was raised there. I think he considers St. Thomas More Parish in Manhattan to be his home parish. But um, Father Gail was raised there. And we have a seminarian, Andy Hamickey, before you might have heard his um, story a while back, who has come out of there as well. So, you know, we can see that here you have a parish that's been served by 35 priests over its its lifetime, but it's only generated two vocations. Something's wrong there. Nextly, so you get to the St. Joseph's Parish. Um, the last vocation to come out of there was Father John Schmeidler, who was ordained in 1996. Also, um, St. Mary's in Ellis. I did a little stint out there back 2007. When Father Albert de Sanctis, who was the pastor there, he died from a subdural hematoma. He died from a blood clot in his brain quite suddenly. And for an eight-month period from about um, November of 2007 until July of 2008, I was the full-time pastor at the Como Catholic Campus Center. I was teaching full-time at Thomas More Prep. And I was also the pastor, the, the administrator out at St. Mary's in Ellis. And during that time, again, I did some digging around out there. The Ellis Parish has not had a native son ordained to the priesthood in over 50 years. And yet during that same period of time... You know there's been any number of capuchin friars and and priests who have served at saint mary's and ellis and yet they haven't contributed anything back to the pot the thing i find remarkable here and kind of sad about all these is the the attitude of the catholic in the pew i remember father kevin was telling me that you know there was some nice ladies that were cleaning up the the house there where he and father josh were living um you might remember when father galen long up in plainville again died quite suddenly last year sometime and all of a sudden, Father Josh gets called out of Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish to go up and be the pastor up in Plainville, leaving Father Kevin to run that huge parish by himself. And as um, the ladies were cleaning up Father Josh's quarters, then you know one of them made the comment to Father Kevin, "Well, should we get this ready for the next for the next priest?" And Father Kevin says, "Or just turning into a guest room." And they're saying, well, what do you mean by that? And Father Kevin says, there may not be anybody coming to replace Father Josh. And, you know, one of these ladies immediately pipes up saying, well, you know, they're ordaining two people this year. They can send one our way. And again, it's a sense of entitlement, this sense that somehow or another that our parish is owed to have a priest when our parish has not generated any vocations. That's quite, quite a remarkable idea, I think. Also, I remember when I was serving at St. Mary's Ellis. you know, when, when Father Albert died and the bishop, um, Bishop Coakley, announced at, at Father Albert's funeral that I would be the administrator for the parish, there was a number of people that were saying, well, so, Father, when are you moving in? When are you going to come out here? You're, you're moving in, right? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm staying at the campus center. That's my assignment. I have to teach full time at Thomas More Prep. I'm not going to drive back and forth every day to, you know, to, to school. And again, they were, they were just, you know, flummoxed. How can this be? You know, we've always had a a resident pastor out here. You mean no one's going to live in the rectory? No, no one's going to live in the rectory. If you need something, you'll have to call and I'll get through as quickly as I can. But again, it was, was, you know, here you have a parish, you know, St. Mary's Nellis. It's a fine parish. I really enjoyed serving out there. But um, you have a parish here that um, has not generated a, a native son vocation in over 50 years, and yet there's this sense that that somehow or another, well, they, they whoever they is, I guess the bishop in the diocese, they have to send someone because we have to have a resident priest. And the fact was there was no one to send. That was the problem that Bishop Coakley was faced with. There was no one to send to cover the, the parish at Ellis after Father Albert died. And so um, basically Father Jim Grennan from, from Russell came over and helped out during the week and I was doing the weekend help out and so on. And we were doing the best we could just to kind of hold things together. But again, I think that um, that we really have to, look at this attitude that, well, they are going to send someone. I mean, you know, we're we're all very saddened. The Capuchins are not going to be at St. Joseph's Parish anymore. Been a part of the fabric of Ellis County for over 100 years and a part of the fabric of Hayes for over 100 years. And yet, again, you know, where are the vocations coming from Ellis County? Where are the vocations coming from St. Joseph's Parish to, you know, replenish the ranks, as it were, With the Capuchin order, many, many priests have served selflessly in heroic parish over the past century or so. And again, where are are the vocations from St. Joe's parish to keep that going? And then when it doesn't happen, everybody is just, again, they're, they're flabbergasted. How can this be? Uh, the Capuchins are pulling out. Well, they, they have to send someone. Well, first of all, where are they, you know, the bishop and the diocese, going to get the people to send if there's no one to send? And so I think that, you know, the first thing that we want to look at when we talk about a culture of vocations is... Look at our own attitude with our home parish. And I think um, everyone who, who can hear this broadcast today, as well as, you know, when you talk to your friends or, you, you know, you email your family or you're talking with people on the telephone and so on. I think every Catholic in this diocese needs to ask themselves two questions. Question number one. How many priests have served in my parish over the last, I'm just going to pull a number out of the air, just say, you know, 30, 35, 40 years. You know, I don't think people's memories can go back much further than that. But just ask ourselves, especially the older folks, if you're 60, 70 years old and you've been in your parish for quite some time, ask yourself, how many priests have served here over the last 30 years? And then ask yourself the next question, how many vocations have come out of my parish over the last 30 years? And I think what's happening is, is in many, many, many parishes, the vast majority of parishes, the number who is served is much greater than the number that's come out. And um, we've been able to kind of hide that for a while because of the number of p- priests in our diocese that are working well past their retirement age. As, as priests, we retire supposedly at 70. Um, and again, most of the priests that I know, most of the priests in our diocese, when when they hit 70, if their health is still good, they, they don't really want to retire. I mean, what are you going to do, go sit around and play golf all day or something? Um, that sounds pretty boring to a lot of us. In fact, speaking for myself, I don't intend on retiring. I want to be like my hero, Monsignor Maynard. When um, he died at 94 years old, he worked up until six months before he died. I think that's the way to go. Die with your boots on. But the thing of it is is eventually though even with your boots on or off people eventually are going to at least die if not suffer dramatic setbacks to their health that will prevent them from being able to carry on their duties as a priest. The thing of it is is like I said we've been able to make up for this deficit. The deficit that there are more priests that have served in parishes than have come out of these parishes and we've made up for it in a number of ways. Number one, like I just said is by the priests working well past the retirement age. Another way is we have improved priests over the the past 50, 60, 70 years. We have had Benedictine priests. We have Jesuits. We've had precious blood fathers. We've had a number of priests from religious orders that have come and helped us out over the years. More recently, we've been extremely blessed, blessed beyond probably what we deserve to have Carmelites from India who have come. We've had um, priests from Burma who have come to help us out. And um, that's the way we've been kind of covering up the deficit. But again, th- these are not long-term solutions. These are kind of stopgap measures. In the meantime, you know, we need to start working on fostering a culture of vocations in the diocese to where our own native sons and daughters will go off to the seminary and go off to the convent and come back and then to do the work of Christ in his fields and, and spreading the gospel. The one of the things again, like I said at the beginning of the broadcast that we're gonna to try to get to the bottom of are some of the kooky ideas that seem to be floating around that people just don't seem to want to let go of. Um, people have snapped on you know bit on these things like snapping turtles and they won't let go of them. First one that that I hear all the time people, albeit at, at some kind of a gathering or, you know, a party or, you know, a wedding party or a baptismal party or, a you know, summer picnic or something like that, you know, associated with one of the parishes. And you kind of be talking with people. And it seems like when people develop a little bit of confidence and they think, well, you know, I can, you know, maybe, you know, kind of, you know, breach this topic with Father and see what he says. One of the things I hear over and over again, and I'll show you why this is just completely, in you know, completely moronic. I mean, it just as it doesn't stand up to any kind of of inspection or investigation at all. People are always so upset about the fact that the priest only ordains unmarried men to the priesthood. Celibacy requirement, that really seems to drive people crazy. And I hear this over and over again. Well, gee, Father, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to have some more vocations, you know, but don't you think if the church would ordain married men, we'd have more vocations? Well, let's talk about that. First of all, we might talk about it just kind of from a practical standpoint. I know, for example, that um, when I was in the seminary, we had a, there was kind of a consortium of seminaries that kind of cooperated with each other on a fairly limited basis. Um, there was the Catholic seminary that I went to in Southern Indiana. Then when you got across over the Ohio River into Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky, there was a seminary called Louisville Presbyterian. There was another seminary called Southern Baptist, which was just huge. And then down in Lexington, Kentucky, there was another seminary called Lexington Theological. And that was a, a seminary for the Disciples of Christ Church. During the interterm, they called it the Day term um, because it was in January, we would come back to school like on January the 10th or something like that. And for about the next two weeks, we had the interterm. And one of the things that we would do over the interterm is The Catholics would go to the Protestant seminaries and the Protestants would come up to the Catholic seminary and we would have this interchange, you know, to hopefully, I don't know, open dialogue or something like that. You'll find out why here in a minute it was really wasn't very effective. But what they wanted to do was they, you know, to get us to see their side and have theirs come up and see our side and things like that. And whenever we would first show up on the steps of the Protestant seminary, when the Protestants would show up on the step of the Catholic seminary, you'd always kind of have this bravado among the, the, the Protestant seminarians because they would come waltzing in and reminding you or know, rubbing it in our face that, oh, well, you know, we ordain married men. We ordain women, you know, so on and so forth. And so, that, you know, we're, that's why we're so much better. And it's like, OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing of it is, is after they'd hang out with us for a while and they would learn that we were not all papal scum, as one guy called us at one time, once they learned that we we were not papal scum and that we were actually pretty nice bunch of guys and kind of fun to hang around, then they would start talking and they would kind of start pouring their hearts out a little bit. And one of the things that I would hear over and over again is, um, you know, they would sit there and say, man, you Catholics don't know how good you got it with this celibacy thing. They would tell about this from two different points of view. One point of view was from the point of view of the pastor. And they would say, as a, whatever they were, Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever, pastor, they knew that it was going to be very difficult for them to fulfill their roles as husbands, fathers, and pastors. And um, they, would, they would say, you guys just don't know how good you got it, You know that you can dedicate yourself completely to the spread of the gospel. Now, again, these are, the, these are Protestants. These are people that if they want to, they can marry and have a family. They can supposedly have it all. They can have their wife. They can have their children. They can have their home, and they can be a pastor of a church. And the, again, sad to say, in a lot of Catholic skulls, they think that that's the way to go. The problem is, again, when you when you talk to these folks, um, you find out that they actually envy us for our discipline of celibacy. Furthermore, what was interesting was we had a number of people there over the years that I was there at St. Mineridge Seminary in Southern Indiana, a fine Benedictine organization. When I was there, there, there would have a number of people that would come up and they would say, well, yeah, you know, my dad was, was a pastor in, you know, Church X or Congregation Y, whatever it was. And you know, the whole time growing up, whenever it came down to some kind of a trade off between the church and the family, the family always took second place. The needs of the church always took first place. And again, you know, you hear these people talk, and they would say, you know, they would talk about how, well, I don't know how I'm going to beat this. You know, if I become a pastor of, you know, some church somewhere, I'm hoping that I can, you know, give my wife and give my children the attention that they're due. But boy, my dad sure couldn't do it. And so again, I think the first thing we want to ask ourselves then, you know, people will sit there and say, well, if we had married priests, you know, that we would have more. Well, I don't know that you can necessarily that you can necessarily make that case because, for one thing, I don't think that it really makes for the most healthy of family lives. At least that's what the Protestants are saying. Another thing is, um, again, some years ago, I wish I would have clipped this out. I should have saved it. But the Salina Journal ran a story some years ago on a, and it actually came out on a Sunday in the Sunday paper and I remember I showed it to the folks at the campus center as part of my sermon. They had done they did about a half page spread in the so-called religion section in their paper talking about the Episcopalian church, the Anglican Church, the scow of Henry the talking about how the the bishop of the Diocese of Western Kansas the C City for the Diocese of Western Kansas in Salina as well. Um the Episcopalian Cathedral is right across the street from Sacred Heart Cathedral. So the bishop of the Diocese of Western Kansas lives in Salina, as does the bishop of the Diocese of Salina, Catholic bishop. What happened was there was a story about how the bishop of the Episcopalian Diocese of Western Kansas was having to come out west and was having to come to various towns out here in the western part of the state to do weddings and funerals and so on. And why is the bishop himself having to do this? Because he does not have enough clergy. It would be as if Bishop was having to come out here and, you know, take care of business here on, you know, cover a couple of masses, maybe an Immaculate Heart, a mass at St. Nick's and a mass at St. Joe's because there's no priests out here. And so the bishop has to do it himself. Well, thanks be to God. We're in, you know, we haven't got to that point yet, but we can see then, you know, the here you have the, the bishop of the Episcopalian diocese having to come out west and cover basic services. Because he didn't have enough clergy. Now, hopefully, you know, maybe hopefully, maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't know, but hopefully, people know. I mean, the Episcopalians—they ordain married men, they ordain women. They even ordained an active homosexual guy to be, you know, to become one of their bishops, and that's what split their church down the middle. That's why they're falling apart at the seams right now. Episcopalians, they showed how progressive and forward thinking they were by again, by ordaining men, by ordaining women, by ordaining married men, married women, and so on, basically ordaining anyone who felt like they should have a right to get ordained. And that's done two things for them. Again, number one, it's fragmented their denomination. Number two, it hasn't generated a, you know, a surplus of clergy when you got the actual, the very Bishop himself having to come out and cover those basic services in that same issue of the paper. You go back a few more pages down the bottom, there was a much smaller story about a bishop, and I think it was in some diocese in Pennsylvania, how he was having to close a couple of of parishes because he didn't have enough priests to staff them all. And here again is where this idea that just wedged in people's heads, you know, come through. In the story about the shortage of Episcopalian clergy, again, where they ordained men, married men, they ordain women. And by the way, Episcopalian clergy command very handsome salaries and make a heck of a lot more than us priests do. Um, not that it matters. I mean, we're not in it for the money, but, you know, again, if, if people are sitting there saying they want to have it all, well, you know, in the Episcopalian church, you can have your wife, you can have your home, you can have a nice salary and so on. And so people are sitting there thinking that's the way to go. Well, it's not working out. For them. and they don't have the clergy that they need and so that so much so that the bishop himself has to come out and cover basic services. Whenever the, st- the paper ran this story, they had all kinds of sociological reasons as to why the Episcopalians might not have the clergy that they need. Oh, well, you know, maybe it's because out there in the western Kansas, out there on the plains and the small towns, um, maybe the minister's wives, you know, the Episcopalian pastor's wife doesn't want to go out there and be out there in the middle of nowhere. Or, you know, well, we're living in a time, said the newspaper article, where um, vocations of service, you know, um, professions of service to other people um, are having a hard go at it. You know, we're seeing that we don't have as many nurses as we would like to have. And maybe, you know, the, the, the ministry is kind of going in that same way that, um, you know, people don't want to be in service oriented um, vocations and things like that. Well, I mean, that's all well and good, except that whenever the paper then, you know, they have to analyze why the Catholic Church has a shortage of clergy. There's one reason and one reason only celibacy. And again, I think that when you compare these two, you can see that that it just doesn't doesn't hold up. If celibacy were the cause of the shortage of priests, then we should be looking at other Protestant denominations that don't have the celibacy requirement, and we should see a plethora of clergy, and we don't. And so therefore, that one just kind of gets blown out of the water. That one's not going to, that doesn't cut it at all. Now I think we're going to take a little bit of a break here, and we're going to come back and look and see what Scripture says about um, about celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we'll go on from there and um, wind up this installment on Double-Edged Sword. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. gang, welcome back. This is Double-Edged Sword. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and um, we're cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture as we're talking about a culture of vocations. We've noticed here in the Hayes area over the past couple of years or so, Father Galen Long died up in in Plainville, and we lost Father Josh Worth to go up there and cover up at Plainville. See that the Capuchins are are, um, not going to be staffing St. Joseph's Parish starting in the spring of next year, And we're wondering about the the culture of vocations and why we don't have the vocations to the priest and religious life that we used to have and that we need. And we've been looking at some of the some of the attitudes, um, some of the attitudes of the Catholic in the pew, as well as some of these ideas that kind of get out there, that um, maybe if we had uh, married priests, we would have more priests and things like that. We saw in the last segment how that's just a bunch of bunk. And um, now we're going to continue on. We're going to see what Scripture has to say about it. You know, um, if you look up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 35, and then also in verse 38, St. Paul in in 1 Corinthians 7, he gives all kinds of advice to married people, to people who are considering getting married. He's also talking to um, people who, you know, to widows and widowers. And he's also talking to people who might be considering um, giving up their lives or not giving up their lives, but investing their lives um, for the sake of the kingdom of God and not getting married so that they can do just that. We have to kind of set something straight here before we jump into this, and we'll go look at the biblical texts. You know, during the disastrous 60s and 70s, there was this unhealthy push for equality that reached the most fundamental levels of, e- of individuals in society. Everybody is the same. I hear that all the time, and it's not true. In vocations talk, there has been an effort to lay out religious vocations as equal to the vocation to marriage, which is equal to the vocation to the single life. Young people in our diocese have been taught that it makes no difference if their parish is run by a pastor or a lay person called a parish life coordinator, and they believed it. I've had young people tell me they don't need to consider a religious vocation because they can get married and serve the church as a PLC, and it's all the same. So you can see we have a lot of damage control here to do, and so I think what we'll do first is we'll take a look at St. Paul's writings here and see what he has to say about this. In his great magnum opus on marriage and so on in 1 Corinthians 7 and also in Ephesians 5, um, St. Paul tells us, for example, in, in, in chapter 7, verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord and how, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world and how to please his wife, and his interests are divided." And the unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord, so that they may be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world and how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to put restraint upon you, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. And so whenever St. Paul is talking about these, he's laying out um, what we might call the natural vocation and the supernatural vocation. Super in, in Latin, the prefix super just means above. And so natural is natural, we know what that means. And so supernatural just means above the natural. And so he said, when he talks about how the, the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world and how to please his wife, that's exactly what he's supposed to be concerned about. The married man should be anxious about the things of the world. He should be concerned about pleasing his wife. And likewise, the married woman should be anxious about the things of the world and pleasing your husband. That's the natural order. That's the way things should be. But then there is the supernatural vocation that Paul is talking about. In fact, he even says in verse 8, he says, "...I say as well for them to remain unmarried as I am." He says, I wish that, were, that all were as I myself am. But each has a particular gift from God, one having one kind, another having another kind. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. So you can see St. Paul has laid out the very high calling to those who would renounce marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. And, and he, he kind of sums all up in verse 38. He says, so then whoever marries his fiance does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. Now, here again, this kind of shows you that there's no such thing as same, that St. Paul says whoever marries does well. Why? Because marriage is a holy vocation. It's a good thing. If you want to see more about what St. Paul says about marriage, go to Ephesians chapter 5. At the same time, St. Paul also says, while marriage is good, renunciation of marriage and devoting oneself solely to the gospel in the celibate life is better. And Jesus says the same thing in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 19, verses 10 and following. He talks about, you know, people, again, who renounce uh, marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. He says he's not imposing this on everybody as a rule, but he says whoever can accept it should. Also, if we go to Familiaris Consortio, it was an encyclical written by um, Pope John Paul II. And um, he talked about thinking about as marriage goes, so goes vocations of the priesthood a religious life, that they're two sides of the same coin. And I think that you know, we can prove this to ourselves. All you have to do is look in the history of the United States over the past 50 or 60 years, and we can look at places in the world to this very day, and we can see this correlation is very, very strong. In other words, what Pope John Paul II was saying was that in a culture where you have strong and viable marriages, where marriage and family life is strong and secure and stable, you also have lots of vocations of the priesthood and religious life. And again, you might consider back in the days, you know, in the 40s and 50s and 60s and so forth in the United States, when marriages were strong, you know, a place like Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish in Hayes had one pastor and three associate pastors. There would be four priests serving at that big parish, which is what it needs. But it was also during that time as well, though, that we you know we didn't have the divorce rate that we have. We didn't have forty percent of our kids being born out of wedlock. You know, we didn't have the, the you know marriage and family being in the shambles that it's in. And so we can look and see in our culture that marriage and family has disintegrated, so have vocations of the priest and religious life. As one goes, so goes the other. We can also look in parts of the world to this day, parts, especially like in places like Africa. I find it quite fascinating. Some years ago, I had um, some kids from Rwanda that were in in my classes at TMP, and we were comparing cultures and talking about what it's like here versus what it's like there and so on. And I asked one of the kids, I said, hey, I said, well, you know, what's the divorce rate like in Rwanda? And the kid just looked at me with this blank stare on his face, and he says, there is no divorce in Rwanda. I said, oh, that's remarkable. And I said, well, tell me some more about that. And he was telling then, of course, the kids at class, I mean, they were just as stunned as I was to hear this kid talk. He says, in my country, when you get married, you get married in order to be married. And when you get married, you stay married. And um, later on, I was kind of talking to him and I said, well, I said, you know, aren't there some people kind of stuck in some pretty bad marriages? He goes, well, yeah, that does kind of happen sometimes. But Everybody else, you know, the societal expectation is that people will get married and stay married. And in so doing, then, that, that kind of builds up a positive momentum that gives people more of, a, of an incentive to kind of work things out when things are going badly. I'm perfectly willing to, um, to concede the point. That you may well have, you know, situations in our country and, you know, any place in the world where a a marriage just may be so in in such a a bad situation that something has to be done up to and including the separation of the spouses. But I don't think you can say that it happens in 50 percent of the cases. I think there's a lot many cases where um, things should be worked through and that when we see, you know, when young people see their parents working through problems rather than running away from them, then that conditions that young child. To do the same thing. And then we would see the same thing. And we'd look what happened in the United States. Look what happened during the disastrous decade of the 70s when our divorce rate just shot through the roof and we had, you know, huge numbers of priests and sisters leaving the priesthood and leaving the convent. Why? You look around, it makes perfect sense. If people can call off a marriage, why not call off a vocation of the priesthood or religious life? If you, know, you have a priest in his parish and he sees his parishioners ditching their, their spouses left and right, it just gets reinforced, well, maybe when the going gets tough in the priesthood, I should leave too. Whereas back in the days when you know, people would stick things out and go through the difficult times and, and try to um, work things out, maybe there was, there was you know, certainly more of a, of a healthy um, atmosphere about that than what we have now. And so I think the first thing we want to look you know, kind of our first big conclusion here, um, based on what we've talked about here and, and in the first section before the break, is that celibacy is not what is holding back vocations. It is a lack of culture of vocations that embrace and champion sacrifice and commitment. And that's what Pope John Paul II talked about in Familiaris Consortio. He was telling us that marriage and religious vocations are two sides of the same coin. Again, in our culture, we sort of like we get these goofy ideas in our heads and like I said, we bite on like a snapping turtle and won't let go we seem to think that, well, no, marriage is one vocation and priesthood or becoming a sister or becoming a monk or a friar. That's just a completely opposite because married people get married and and religious people don't. And just really kind of cut to the quick here and, you know, just get down to the the nitty gritty. And again, in most people's sick minds, it's, well, married people can have sex and consecrated people can't. And so therefore, neither of them have anything to do with each other. Well, again, John Paul II talks about this eloquent in, in familiaris consortio, that, that what marriage has to be about is sacrificing of one's own self and one's own pleasures and one's own desires and so forth for the sake of the spouse and for the family and committing to that. That's what it's about: is sacrifice and commitment. And the priesthood is about the same thing. The religious life is about the same thing: sacrifice and commitment. Now, does this to say that every day in, in marriage or, or religious life has to be drudgery? No. In married life. The spouses have the mutual support of the husband loving and supporting his wife, the wife loving and supporting her husband. And that's what, you know, helps us to thrive in the sacrament of marriage, at least we would hope. It's the same thing in the religious life. You know, we have the fraternity of the priests, um, or if you live like with the Capuchins, the living community with the friars, living in the friary together, and they have their family or the sisters in the convent. There is an atmosphere of mutual support there um, to support people as they pray together and eat together and recreate together together and so on so that, you know, we can thrive in our vocations. This isn't something we just want to get through. We just want to survive. We want to thrive in this. So I think that if we, you know, looking back and just kind of summarizing our first big point is the, this idea that, well, if the church would just ordain married men, or if the church would ordain women, we'd have all the vocations we need. Folks, that is just total rubbish and nothing that I have seen backs up that particular point of view. In fact, the opposite seems to be true. All we have to do is again, look around at places today where you have married clergy in the various Protestant denominations and they do not have a surplus of clergy. And in fact, it seems like I'm um, in the denominations that are the most you know, freewheeling about whoever they'll ordain, they're the ones that have the least amount of clergy. And so again, that just doesn't stand up. Furthermore then, I think when we look in times and places where marriages are sound and healthy and secure and stable, you also have many vocations of the priesthood and religious life. And so part of our culture of vocations is to, again, re-embrace or rediscover what it means to live a life of commitment and sacrifice. And that this is really the only way to finding it. It's sort of a paradox because our culture tells us, and common sense might even tell us, you know, kind of a, a first observation might tell us, that if I'm doing everything for me and making myself happy all the time, that that's a fulfilled life. And then we find out, of course, that it's not, that people who live lives totally for themselves tend to end up in rehab, tend to end up dead, you know, and so on. And so it doesn't seem to work out that well. On the other hand, when we see people who who embrace lives of sacrifice and commitment, believing in something greater than themselves... And where that something is their spouse and their family, or where that something is the gospel and the church, that there is where we find people who are truly happy and truly fulfilled, and where they really, you know, kind of find find a life that has some meaning to it. Lastly, then we might want to talk about the culture of vocations and what a culture of vocations might look like. Um, I know that it's always kind of interesting whenever we go down to Wichita for our clergy renewal days and retreats and so on, whenever I see the Wichita Diocese Vocation poster, they have between 50 and 60 seminarians in the Diocese of Wichita, 50 and 60 Constantly in the diocese line, I think this year we have about eleven. Not that I'm complaining; these guys are 24 karat gold, and they're great. Um, they're you know very very high quality young men. We're looking forward to the day that God willing, they would all be ordained to the priesthood, and we'll have some very very fine young priests in the diocese. But again, I think when you look at the diocese of Wichita having 50 and 60 vocations a year, and us, you know, I mean, I think last year we had 14, which was kind of a record for us for quite some time. We kind of have to ask ourselves, what's going on? What's the difference? Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, there's a city of Wichita, a town of 300,000 people. They have a bigger pool to draw from. Well, that that's that might be part of it. I mean, there are a number of the vocations on the Wichita vocation poster that come from Wichita, but there's many, many others that are coming from small little towns, you know, little towns like Pittsburgh, Kansas, little towns like Garden Plain, Kansas, and so on, little places where they're getting vocations out of there as well. Something's going on in that diocese where the people have a, an, an appreciation and a culture for vocations. Maybe they understand what we don't. You know, the, we talked about in the first segment that evidently in our diocese, people just seem to think that, well, they're just going to send someone. If my pastor dies or if he moves on or if he retires, whatever, you know, they'll just send someone. Well, they're not just going to send someone because they can't pull a priest out of thin air. Someone has to be willing to lay their life on the line and commit themselves to the gospel for the rest of their life. But I think that um, you know one of the things that you know might kind of help out a little bit, I know that over the years, we've had a number of meetings where people sit around and wring their hands about vocations and, oh, what should we do about vocations and so on. And one time we were at one of these meetings, I call them love-ins because, um, to quote Winston Churchill, when all is said and done at these meetings, there is much more said than done. And so a lot of talking goes on, but not a whole lot ever gets done. And I remember one time we were sitting around, everybody's wringing their hands. What do we do about vocations? What do we do about vocations? And um, there are only two of the priests that said anything that made any sense. One was Monsignor Jim Hake. Um, again, he's recently retired after, um, you know, again, just heroically serving in the diocese in a number of capacities and in, in a number of parishes. And then, again, this has been 15 years ago. But um, he said, unless we recover a sense of what the Eucharist is about, we're not going to see more vocations. Now there, see, connecting Eucharist with vocations. That would be part of building up a culture of vocations. And so how will we do that? Well, we might want to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Number one, ask our question, does Jesus matter? That's a pretty profound question. A lot of people would immediately say, yes, he does. But then let's go on to these other questions. If Jesus does matter... And then the Eucharist is central to our lives, since in the Gospel of St. Luke, Jesus tells us that we will come to know him in the breaking of the bread. I um, mean, it, it's the story of the walk to Emmaus where um, Cleophas and his little companion on Easter Sunday afternoon are walking to a town about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And Jesus appears to them and it says, well, you know, he explains the Bible to them, and they don't they don't understand who he is. And finally, they go into the house and it says Jesus acted as if he was going further, but they invited him to stay with them. And it says Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them and says at that point they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Then they go back to Jerusalem and they find the 11 and it says they told him how he had made the, what he told them along the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread, how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's Luke 24, verse 35. You can look it up. And so if we want to know Christ, we are going to have to know Christ in the Eucharist. Secondly, to receive the Eucharist worthily, we have to be in the state of grace, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 29. In 1 Corinthians 11, that's where St. Paul is giving his teachings on the Eucharist. And what does he say? In verse 27, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable to the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread or drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. In other words, that's where we have the teaching that to receive the, the, the Holy Eucharist while in the state of mortal sin, that that itself is an even worse sin called a sacrilege. And so again, just backing up, does Jesus matter? If he does matter, we're going to have to know him in the Eucharist because that's what the Bible says. To receive the Eucharist, we have to be in the state of grace. And therefore, we need a priest for confession and absolution. Also, to receive the Eucharist, point four, we need a validly ordained priest through whose hands the Holy Spirit changes the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus. Again, if Jesus does not matter, none of this other stuff matters either. So, a central aspect to our culture of vocations is a love and awe for Jesus as he is found in the sacrament of the Eucharist. So, I think that maybe if we're asking ourselves, gee, How could we get our vocation poster in our diocese to have 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 guys on it studying for the priesthood? How do we do that? We reinvigorate in ourselves and and reinculcate in ourselves a sense of awe for Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. How do we do that? By going to confession more regularly, by being more attentive to the, the the requirements of the Eucharist, by you know fasting before that hour before we come to Mass, and then also, you know, dressing the part for Mass, putting on our good clothes to come to church and so on. Things like this will remind us over and over again that when we go to Mass, we're going there for something substantial, the most substantial thing in the universe, which is to receive the very person of Christ, you know, to have this personal encounter with Almighty God. And um, if we do that, and again if our young people see that. Then it's going to uh, it's going to orient them to where when they do hear the call, and that's kind of the interesting thing. When they do hear the call, that they will be more open to hearing it and then acting upon it. I think what we're seeing, in fact, I know what we're seeing, is again during these times in the '60s and '70s and '80s, when we institutionalize selfishness as our new religion, even sad to say, in, you know, among the, our Catholic ranks. People were sitting there saying, well, you know, I might be being called to to a vocation of the religious life or to the priesthood, but I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. Or sad to say, I hear this a lot. You know, I'll talk to young people. And again, if I want to know what's said at home, all I got to do is talk to the kids. They'll tell you they'll tell you what, everything you want to know and probably more than what you want to know. And when I hear a fourth grader or a 10th grader say going into the seminary is throwing away your life, going to the convent is a waste of a life. Where do they get that from? They get that from their parents. That's where they get it from. And as long as we have attitudes like that floating around, even if the young person does hear the call from God, the call is going to be squashed out. By these other claims, that if they were to invest their life for the gospel, it would be a waste of their life. Well, again, I think one of the remedies to that is a reinvigoration of our devotion and our love for Christ, as he is found in the sacrament of the Eucharist. The second thing that was said at this meeting that made sense was Father Henry Kiefer. He died a few years ago, um, but he was a gentleman of just a real um, gem of a guy, a real you know gentleman priest of the church. He said back in the days when priests stayed put, when pastors stayed put in their parishes for thirty or forty years, we had more vocations. Now that's something you'd have to take up with the bishop because he's the one who makes the decisions as to when and you know when to move and who to move and things like that. But again, what Father Henry was saying, he says back in the days, you know, when a when a pastor would show up in a parish, maybe when he was 30 years old and be there till he was 65 or 70, till he retired, and he was there the whole time. Number one, he would have to cast his lot with the people of that parish, you know, as the community and as the parish went, so went the priest, you know, and so it kind of gives the the priest a real incentive to, um, you know, really kind of do his best. Otherwise, you know, he's going to be living with the um with the, with the result of not having worked very hard. And that's not going to, it's not going to work out well for him or the people. But the other thing is, is he would be there long enough to, you know, maybe you have, you know, a young couple and they come and they baptize their child and the child grows up. And so the priest is there for the child's first communion for his confirmation, and maybe even to do the wedding for that child. And then you have a third generation coming up and now the, you know, the priest knows the whole family well enough that when he talks about vocations with that family, I think in a certain sense, you know, every every Catholic is going, well, of course, Father's going to talk about vocations. That's one of the things priests talk about. They talk about vocations. But I don't think they're really going to take it to their heart unless they really understand. And, you know, they have a personal relationship with this priest and they know who he is. And they know where he's coming from and so on. That if they hear that. Then you know, after getting to know the guy, they'll go, well, you know, Joe, yeah, you know, Father thinks that our daughter has a call to the convent or our son has a call to the to the seminary. Maybe we should listen to that. And so again, back when when pastors stayed put longer, it seems like we had more vocations. That was Father Henry's observation. So I think the, again, there's going to have to be a renewal in putting value on commitment and sacrifice. And like I said, as long as we enshrine selfishness. Um, as an institution, marriages will continue to fail and vocations will continue to flounder. Love expressed through commitment and sacrifice is going to be the way to reanimate all this and and to get it going again. So again, hopefully, you know, in this last little, this, you know, less than an hour we've had together here, though, Hopefully we've had a chance to kind of pick some of this stuff apart. And um, I'm hoping that after hearing this broadcast, you will not be one of the people going around going, well, you know, if the, if the church would just ordain married men, we'd have all the clergy we need. It's not true. It's not going to happen. That it's all about commitment. It's all about sacrifice. It's all about being willing um, to live and to commit oneself to something greater than oneself. And that unless and until we can get back to that, you know, we're going to be in a world of hurt. And again, also, I think that, you know, especially from what I've heard, that it's, we really got to have to get off this kick. There's always going to be someone, you know, the bishop is always going to send someone to my parish. Folks, we are getting to a point now where the bishop personnel board are going to have to start making some really, really tough decisions about which parishes to keep open. And um, if I have my way about it, if I'm, um, you know, I was sitting on these meetings, I would say the first thing you look at is you say, How many priests have served in this parish over the last 30 or 40 years, and how many vocations has this parish generated? And like I said, you know, in the vast majority of cases, most of the parishes in this diocese have used many, many more priests than they have contributed. And so, and and I think what's happened is, you know, again, people's lived experience is, well, we don't have any ordinations here, but we always have a priest. And so people think that they always will. Well, that's not the case. And so again, I think as we go about um, you know, trying to rebuild a culture of vocations, um, we want to be looking at a number of things, not the least of which is our love and devotion to the sacrament of the Eucharist. But then also, what is this? You know, what, what do we think about marriage? What are our attitudes about marriage and family? And then then that's naturally good. I think once we have the Eucharist rate, um, the Sacrament of Reconciliation and then marriage and family, that's automatically going to spill over into our attitudes about um, re, um, vocations, the priesthood and religious life. And, um, you know, we can see that, you know, there could be a rebirth and a revivification of, of vocations, both to the married life and to the religious life as well. So that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website. At DV, that's V as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. You can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are archived installments of Double-Edged Sword and also the One Body Program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio. And those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure. If you want to go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you want to listen to again, also check out our donate button because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning into this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.